It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening. I'm William Hosea. On September 29th, the first of three scheduled presidential debates took place. What was supposed to be a civil exchange of views, critiques, and plans for the future of America quickly devolved into an obscene spectacle of belligerent attacks and over-talking by Donald Trump, our nation's 45th president, upon his contender, former Vice President Joseph Biden. President Trump certainly did not gain any significant new new support, but rather stoked up his entrenched base and rattled the collective nerves of the Republican Party elite. It was disgraceful and shameful to watch, but not totally unexpected. With Trump sliding in the polls, his strategy now appears to discredit the election process rather than defend his record, point out the contrast between he and Joe Biden, and denounce white nationalism and white supremacy. Tonight, we plan to sort through the complexity and constitutionality of issues like Trump's impact on the military, his recent tax avoidance and evasion woes, the September 29th presidential debate, the nomination of conservative Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, and Trump's repeated refusal to agree to a peaceful transfer of power should Biden win the election. To help us reach our goal, we have invited back Indiana University Professor Joseph Hoffman, an award-winning scholar and law teacher who holds the Harry Pratter Professorship and past recipient of a law school gavel award. Joining him is Major General Craig Q. Timberlake of the United States Marine Corps. Major General Timberlake has enjoyed a highly successful and distinguished career. Major General Timberlake retired from the Marine Corps in 2018 after 41 years of service. And with that, gentlemen, welcome back to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so glad to have you uh, back. Uh, just the other night, on the 29th, uh, we witnessed the presidential debate. Uh, and what we had hoped would be a civil discourse turned or devolved into something that was uh, really uh, not worth watching. Uh, given that, uh, Professor Hoffman, let me start off by asking you a question. Would you recommend that Vice President uh, Biden continue on debating President Trump given the outcome of the first presidential debate? So I think uh, I think Vice uh, former Vice President Biden is in a bit of a pickle there. I don't think he can walk away um, without um, people, some people holding it against him. <clears throat> I'm hopeful that the uh, commission that that schedules and arranges these debates. Um, might decide to pull the plug on any future debates on the obvious uh, reality that um, this is who President Trump is and this is what he will be and it doesn't serve anyone's interest to have any further opportunities for him to behave um, in this manner on national television. 
Um, I would I would certainly hope, and and I think there's some evidence that that there are discussions like that taking place. Um, but I don't think uh, I don't think Joe Biden can make that decision uh, unilaterally. I think he has to say, "I'll be there. I'm not afraid of this guy. I'm not right. gonna I'm not gonna be pushed into that corner." General Timberlake, care to comment on that? Sure. You know, normally after a debate, uh, the next morning, uh, the headlines, uh, whether it be on the in the printed press or just on the news, and all the pundits are gathered. And they're talking about who won, who won, who won. Did this side win? Did that side win? I think most people would agree that no one won that night. America truly did lose, and I think it's unfortunate because the world is watching America. We are still that beacon of light. Other countries still look to America for leadership. And when we show what we showed the other night, that's not really showing a lot of leadership. I agree. I agree. Um, well, during that debate, we heard a lot of uh, incendiary um, messages and themes. And it, it really was sort of nauseating to sort of watch. But one of the questions that came up, uh, if if the outcome of the election is that Trump loses. How is it possible that we find ourselves even asking him if he would support a peaceful transfer of power? And when did it become the loser's choice uh, to, to make that declaration? And Joe Biden sort of answered on Tuesday night, but, but what are your opinions concerning the peaceful transfer of power? And I'll, I'll ask Professor Hoffman to share his thoughts on this. Uh, <clears throat> well, you know, when you ask how did we get to this point, um, we got here because we <clears throat> we elected a president who um, has made it a career, has made a life out of um, ignoring established norms of conduct, uh, whether those norms be um, ones that are part of law and part of the rules by which the game is played. Um, you know, the, the the debate rules, for example. Um, were well established in advance. Donald Trump agreed to those rules and then just completely ignored them when uh, when the time came. Um, but even more importantly, um, President Trump has made a lifetime out of ignoring the unwritten rules of conduct by which we organize our our individual and our social lives. Uh, you know, I, I teach in a law school where. Um, <clears throat> you know, we teach a lot of rules to our students. We teach a lot of legal rules, statutes, ordinances, regulations, and the like, constitutional provisions. Um, but we also teach them that that's, that's by far not uh, all that law is, right? That's, that's the very visible kind of law, the binding law. But there's also a whole lot of law that takes place that isn't written down, that isn't isn't uh, codified in, in that way. It's the unwritten rules of conduct. We can't live in society without having certain understandings about behavior. You know, there's certain things I couldn't do right now because we, you all would look at me like I was insane uh, for doing it. Um, but you know, we, we have a president who has made his life uh, one in which he ignores those things. And that's kind of what we saw mo most visibly on display. Um, and it was, as the general said, it was very unfortunate because of the message that it sent. Of course, hopefully those leaders around the world and people around the world who uh, are aware of what's been going on in this country for the past four years 
um, were not surprised by it and like us are hoping and waiting with bated breath um, for the day when this too shall pass and those norms we're going to have to rebuild them. It's not going to be completely easy and trivial. We're going to have to reestablish those norms. And frankly speaking, I think more than anything else, that's what this election comes down to, is um, getting a president in office who has promised a return to normalcy in that sense of, you know, let's go back to the way things used to be when people behaved in, in a manner that for generations we have understood is, is a proper, acceptable way to behave. Now, Donald Trump, uh, in, in my opinion, he seems to go as far as the Republican leadership will allow him to go. Uh, when they collectively push back on him, then he'll, he tends to take a step back. But another thing he does is uh, he seems to respect uh, court decisions. I don't know of any... Uh, uh, court that has ruled against him, uh, where where he has continued to uh, where he has ignored the court ruling and just done whatever he wants to do. But again, at the same time, he ignores written and unwritten rules. But General Timberlake, uh, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, every single institution that was supposed to rein in Donald Trump has failed. And the only serious effort given to keeping Donald Trump in check was the House. And although they did impeach him, prosecution failed in the Senate. The only institution that has not been corrupted by Donald Trump, despite his efforts, is the military. And the military throughout the country seems to be the last legitimately recognized institution by most politicians and and the majority of the country. General Milley uh, made it clear that the military would not be involved in politics. And you said pretty much the exact same thing uh, during our last interview. With us being four weeks out from the election, Donald Trump is trying to engineer a legal showdown by blatantly stacking the court with a third justice who he thinks will vote in his favor if he refuses to commit to a, a peaceful or orderly transition of power. So that said, and I, I know you, you said the military won't be, be involved in politics, but is it reasonable, or would it be reasonable for military leaders after the election to say, we recognize this person as a legitimately elected president? Would, that be, would the military be crossing the line and getting into politics at that point? I don't think they would be crossing the line and getting into politics if, if that is all they said, because they mm-hmm. recognize that they're the commander in chief that commander in chief's role is set up by the constitution of the United States. So for them to say that we will follow the orders of the legal occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania is not a problem. But I I think the bigger issue here is what you alluded to earlier. Um, We all remember that photo op where peaceful demonstrators were removed. um, And it looked as if General Milley and Secretary Asper um, were actually a part of that and somehow participating in that removal peaceful de- uh, demonstrators. Since then, they've made a very concerted effort to ensure that the only role for the military in a contested election outcome, the only role is to continue to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And by doing that, they will retain America's trust and confidence 
I agree with you that one of the institutions that America seems to continually trust is the United States military. They rank very favorably and very high in all polls on who do you trust as an American. And General Milley being a four-star general and Secretary Asper being a former military officer as well as the Secretary of Defense, they seem to be pretty much determined that nothing will change on their watch for the bad. It might get better, but it won't get worse when it comes to the trust of the American people. They do not. They do not want to lose the collective trust of the American people. General Timberlake, uh, this has probably never happened in your 41 years in uniform, but I got to correct you on one thing. 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is now Black Lives Matter Plaza. <laughs> well put, well put. So, <laughs> it, 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 so if I might, um, you know, uh, add to, to what, what the general said, I, I, one of the few things that helps me to sleep at night, and, and this is a time in my life when it's hard to sleep at night sometimes, but one of the few things that allows me to do that is knowing that good men like, like the general are, are standing at these, uh, you know, these, um, places of power and, um, and, you know, our military, uh, the United States military, uh, is, is the envy of the world because of its uh, professionalism, because of its ethical code, its code of honor. And there's a reason why the public trusts our military more than basically any other institution uh, known, known to man. Um, and I, I place a lot of trust and confidence in that, that um, there are some people in positions of power who, when push comes to shove, will do the right thing because that's who they are and it's what they've been trained to do and it's what they will do. Um, that I think we can count on. Um, I also think it's worth saying that although Donald Trump has clearly tried um, to um, exert influence over the Supreme Court um, in exactly the way that, that you mentioned, William, um, it's not at all clear to me that he will succeed in that effort. Um, he, he likes to think that the courts will do his bidding um, and then he's surprised when they don't. And that's because he doesn't have any real understanding of, of what the judiciary is as an institution and how it's designed and how its code of conduct, its code of ethics, its, its history, its traditions uh, work. Um, he thinks that they're like another department in his corporation, that he can tell them what to do. And when he appoints them, you know, they'll do his bidding. Um, I, I, I hope and pray that he's going to be proven, you know, absolutely wrong in that, in that belief and that the Supreme Court, like the military, um, which has a similar kind of trust of the American people, certainly far more than the American people trust either Congress or, or the president. Um, you know, I think the Supreme Court similarly will do what is necessary to preserve its own legitimacy in the eyes of the public. Now, um, we had a, a kind of a glitch in that, in that history of the Supreme Court and legitimacy and avoiding politics. Um, in 2000, when the court weighed in in a contested election in the case of Bush versus Gore. But I think if you, if you pay attention to what those who were on the court at the time have said subsequently, what you find out is that they were kind of caught flat-footed in that situation. 
they didn't really anticipate enough that they were going to be put in that position of potentially deciding the outcome of a presidential election that was dragging on into early December. Um, and they didn't think it through carefully enough. And I think they kind of have expressed some regret at the way that all uh, played out because it did harm the court and made it look like they were playing politics. I think there were some important lessons learned at that time. And I would bet my last dollar that the current members of the Supreme Court, starting with Chief Justice John Roberts, who cares passionately and deeply about the history and tradition of the institution of the court, I, I know that they are thinking day and night through all the different scenarios that might come to them if this election ends up being a contested election, how can the court handle it in a way that preserves its reputation and the legitimacy it has in the eyes of the American people? So I wouldn't necessarily count out the court as another institution that can help to protect us from the worst aspects of what could be a real constitutional crisis. Like the military, I think they are, at least for now, I think they're deserving of that support. Uh, Professor Hoffman, um, do you think that President Trump should have waited until after the election before uh, offering up a nominee for one of the justices seats on the Supreme Court? Uh, of course I do. Um, the hypocrisy around what happened to Merrick Garland um, in 2016 and what's happened now uh, with uh, Judge Barrett's nomination um, is um, beyond belief. It's just beyond belief. You know, Lindsey Graham is on tape saying uh, if something like this happens in the last year of President, President Trump's first term, he said it that way. He said, if this happens four years from now, I will not support going forward in that last, you know, in that election year context. And he said, hold the tape, hang on to the tape, play it back four years from now. Well, here we are. Um, so the level of hypocrisy is, is, is beyond belief. Having said that, I, I do want to stress that I think that uh, Judge Barrett is an incredibly capable nominee. This is not about the merits of, of Judge Barrett as a nominee uh, to the United States Supreme Court. She is well qualified, extremely well qualified. She has a good record as a judge in the short time that she's been on the federal appellate bench. Um, I, I have no doubt that on the merits, she's going to be a good justice. Um, it's all about the process. It's all about the way that this nomination came to to, to happen and, and the precedent um, from four years earlier being ignored. So yeah, it's all about process. The process stinks. You know, something, uh, something else that's interesting about the Supreme Court nomination is Judge Coney Barrett currently occupies a seat, another seat that was stolen by Mitch McConnell during Barack Obama's term. Yep. Uh, same old, same old, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It's, it's, Mitch McConnell uh, will go down in history as um, an incredibly effective manipulator of power. Um, and I, I use that word, you know, deliberately. Um, he is very good at what he does. Hashtag um, what, judicial thief. Yeah, manipulator of power. Uh, he, he, he is what he is. And we knew that. And, you know, and to, and to Mitch, I am from Kentucky. 
So I'm pretty familiar with Mitch uh, McConnell. And to his credit, he told us exactly what he was going to do. Again, this is not one of those individuals that you have to demonize. Just listen to his words, look at his actions, and they will probably do that for you. Um, I, uh, I know that the Constitution doesn't specifically address the number of justices that can be placed on a court, but is, uh, is that a wise thing for either party to try to stack the court? What could eventually happen because of that? Um, and are there safeguards perhaps from any party attempting to do that? Well, um, you're, you're right that there's nothing in the Constitution that specifies how many justices will sit on the Supreme Court. And in fact, the number has changed from the framing until now. It's been stable for quite some time. There is a federal statute that now provides for nine uh, justices. Um, that can be changed at any time that a new statute takes its place. Of course, to enact a new statute about something that consequential would certainly require that the same party be in charge of both houses of Congress and the presidency, and no divided government is going to pass a statute changing the number of justices. Um, could it happen if either the Democrats or the Republicans were to sweep the elections? Uh, could it happen that uh, one of those parties, let's say that based on polls right now, there's there's zero chance that the Republicans would sweep all, all the elections and hold both houses of Congress as well as the presidency. I don't think even the most optimistic Repu Republican would see that as a possibility right now. Uh, if the Democrats were to do that, would, could the Democrats pack the court with a new statute? Yes, they could. Should they do that? I think not. Um, and that's, and it, that's one of those unwritten rules. You know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to do it in the 1930s when he got upset that the Supreme Court was, was blocking his New Deal proposals. And he went on radio program, his weekly radio address, and, and told the American people that he was going to pack the court to solve the problem. And he submitted legislation to Congress to do exactly that. And uh, despite the fact that he had basically control of the Congress, um, the Congress balked. They wouldn't, they wouldn't pass that legislation. And ultimately, FDR backed down. Um, and you know, that's partly what I mean by that kind of unwritten rule that you just don't do that. That's messing with that. That's that's messing with the Supreme Court and turning it into a political football in a way that is damaging to the United States, to the rule of law and to the judiciary. And you don't do that. It's just an unwritten rule. That's what Joe Biden said previously. He doesn't want to talk about that right now with the election four weeks away, but it is something he has been pretty clear about previously that he doesn't think we should do that. And I don't think we should do that either. I think there are other ways for Congress to um, respond to the perception of an illegitimate Supreme Court. If you think the process stinks, and if you think the court has lost some legitimacy as a result of that, and you're afraid of what that court might do, do what Congress did in the Reconstruction period after the Civil War. At that time, Congress didn't trust the Supreme Court either. It still was the Supreme Court dominated by holdover Southern justices who predated the war. And during Reconstruction, Congress didn't trust them as far as they could throw them. So what Congress did is pass some statutes that said certain subject matters that are really important to us aren't going to go to the Supreme Court. These are called jurisdiction stripping statutes. The Congress has the power 
under the Constitution, it's written in the Constitution that Congress can make exceptions to the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. And if Congress wants to, on you know January 30th of next year, a new Democratic Congress supported by a Democratic president could pass a statute saying no matter related to the Affordable Care Act can be decided by the Supreme Court of the United States. That's the kind of move that I think is, is a better move than trying to pack the court. Because if you pack the court, you're just escalating a war of politics. Then what happens when the Republicans take power? They add more justices. And then the Democrats add more. And then the Republicans add more. And pretty soon you got 50 justices on the Supreme Court. And it's become a complete political football. Go the other direction. If you think the court's illegitimate, take away some of their power. The only move that could then be made in response is to give them back that power. But then you're right back to status quo anyway, and the thing ends. There's no escalation. Well, if you've just tuned in, the voice you've heard is IU Professor Joseph Hoffman, award-winning scholar and law teacher. And joining us in the conversation today also is retired Major General Craig Q. Timberlake of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, Professor Hoffman, um, this has come up in the past, probably in the last whole year or so that uh, with the president's legal woes um, and of the legal woes in particular, the one of several potential lawsuits or indictments coming down from the Southern District of New York um, and, and other entities out there sort of waiting for him to maybe finish his first term only and then they'll proceed. Uh, and that has no doubt added to uh, Trump's uh, bizarre behavior, trying to avoid that uh, potentiality. And someone once talked about a statute of limitations on how the court can act. Um, and I want to get both your impressions, both you and General Timberlake, on whether or not they should try to remove that statute of limitations so that even if he does win re-election, uh, the, uh, the game clock doesn't run out and he can still be held accountable at, at the end of his second term because some of these crimes or some of these allegations are serious and they need to be uh, uh, resolved in a court of law. And, and just how do our, our, how do our members of our nation do this and how do our allies around the world do this? So both of you, I'll defer first to Professor Hoffman, then I'd like for uh, Major Timberlake to, to chime in. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll try to keep my response real brief, although it's a very, <laughs> very complicated question. But um, I, you probably won't be surprised to hear me say that I would rather we not manipulate the rules of things like statute of limitations and so forth in response to a, his, a historically unique situation of a president who has engaged in some of the kinds of behaviors that uh, President Trump has engaged in. Um, those rules are, exist for good reason, and I, I, I guess I don't think we need to mess around with them. Um, yes, justice should be done. Yes, there are things that can be done, um, but um, I, I don't think we would want to establish the precedent of, uh, like you see in some, uh, you know, tin pot, um, you know, dictatorships, of you know whoever's in power going after the guy who was in power before and trying to get him locked up, um, I, I I think that's you know that's part of the ridiculousness of uh, President Trump making 
you know, making such a campaign issue last last time in 2016 about locking her up, right? Let's lock her up. Um, come on. Uh, we are not a tin pot dictatorship where, um, you know, the winner locks up the loser. Um, let's not worry about that. Let's move on. Um, do whatever the law allows. And, and it'll be interesting. You know, President Trump will try to pardon himself if he loses. I have no doubt about that. I have no doubt about that. Um, that's an unanswered legal question, whether he would have the power to do that. That's a question that could end up in the Supreme Court someday, although my guess is the court would try to avoid answering such a hotly political question. But, um, you know, whatever the rules allow, go after him. But let's not let's not bend the rules or change the rules so that we can lock him up. Let's just let's just stop. Let's just stop. I'd agree with the professor. Uh we're noted for playing by the rules. We want to have that reputation. We covet the reputation that we play by the rules. And you know, the police kind of have a saying, and I can't give you an exact quote, but they kind of say, you know, you can't become a criminal to catch criminals. Well, we don't want to do anything to the president that we've accused them of doing to others, because then there is no difference. Yep. And, and, I, and, and let me just add to what the general, I think so correctly just stated, you know, that, that's not to say that we don't break rules sometimes, that people don't break the rules in America. Police break the rules, people in the military break the rules, other people break the rules, it happens. But the rules are what matter and we gotta keep focusing on that. And we're gonna have some real hard work to do in this country if President Trump is voted out of office in November, we're gonna have some real hard work to do in this country to rebuild that trust and confidence in both the written rules and the unwritten norms and rules that, that govern our society. Let's get started on that. Let's rebuild that, that trust. Here, here. Uh, I wanna follow up with uh, General Timberlake. Um, you know, there've been new revelations as far as um, taxes that have been avoided or evaded uh, that will be sort of sorted out later but massive amounts of debt uh, has allegedly uh, taken place around 400 million dollars somewhere in that neighborhood maybe more and some suspect that russia may hold uh, vast amounts of that debt which then puts a sitting president or politician or someone who has security clearance in a very precarious situation as far as uh, where are your allegiances all of a sudden. And if anything, um, I, I think many have sort of pointed a finger at this president to say that he has split loyalty here through his behavior, not just uh, the way he gushes over some uh, leaders who like Putin and, and, uh, and North Korean leader, but, but just his posture towards some of these foreign leaders, this, people suspect that there's something more there. And then now that this new revelation has come out with all this massive debt, much of it international, or some of it rather international, how could that uh, influence a political leader and are there safeguards um, to protect against it? You know, rather than go down, uh, how could it influence? Um, I, I would say this, the president of the United States is a commander in chief. And if he were not the commander in chief, but a regular, if you will, member of the military, and he applied for a security clearance, just on what we know alone, he would be denied. I mean, the, the, the clearance process is set up such that you fill out forms, 
you give references and a background investigation is conducted on everyone who's granted a security clearance. And not just when you're granted, but five years later, when you want to continue that security clearance, then another background investigation, a huge amount of debt, whether or not it's owed to Russia or any foreign entity, would be a disqualifier. As a general and flag officer in the United States military, every three years, you fill out what's called a 278, Form 278, and you actually list your assets and liabilities in general form, but you do. And if the information is either incorrect or even suspicious, then you could be denied a security clearance. And that would be the same thing with any member of the military. Now, now doesn't a sitting president or, or a legislator likewise fill out some form um, sharing what he owes or she owes or, or I, what's their I, financial I can, situation? I can only speak to the military members, but I have read that congressmen and senators do the same thing. Again, in general format, not specific down to the penny, but they do have to list assets and liabilities. Well, General, uh, we've both worn the uniform. So a few years ago, I, I was appalled at some of the comments that Donald Trump made about John McCain. You know, in, in addition to Trump uh, evading military service, he did, uh, John McCain did something that Donald Trump just could never do. And that is when, when afforded the opportunity to go home, uh, to be released from the prison camp he was held in, he, he, uh, he refused it because he didn't want to leave uh, uh, his fellow service members behind. But I was even more appalled when I heard the story about the suckers and losers comment. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I got to tell you, much has been made on whether or not the president actually said, whether he actually called those individuals who gave the full measure at the Battle of Bellawood and other subsequent fighting in France uh, in World War I. And people have commented on whether or not he said, whether or not he called them suckers and losers. And I will tell you, I think for your listeners, uh, a, a good three-part test for them might be the three-part test that I use personally to decide on whether or not I believe that he made those comments. And the first one is, has the president used those la that language before? And yes, you just answered that. He used that against Senator John McCain. He called him a loser. He said, instead, of, I don't like people that were captured. I'd rather have my heroes not captured. And I think it's very interesting to note that uh, John McCain was shot down over North Vietnam in 1967, and the president was 21 years old in college receiving his first of five deferments for the Vietnam War. So again, test question number one, has the president used that language before? Yes, he has, and he used it against Senator McCain, a war hero, an American hero. The second thing is, if you notice, all the other leaders made it a point to be at that commemoration in France, every other leader. Now the president says it was too dangerous to fly, and it was too dangerous to go over land. Well, he's the commander in chief. He made the decision. They could only advise him, hey, president, it's, it's pretty dangerous. Do you want to fly? No, I don't want to fly. Do you want to go over land? No, it's too dangerous. Well, what is danger to those individuals that are laying there again that have given the full measure? And, and, and then the final thing, and, and you know this, having worn the United States Marine Corps uniform 30, over 30 years, you know this in your heart of hearts. 
we're taught in recruit training, boot camp. We're taught in officer candidate school, the long heroic tradition of the Battle of Bella Wood. The Germans said the Americans, specifically the Marines, fought like the dogs that guarded the gates of hell. Two for hunting, devil dogs is where we got that nickname. So the president didn't go to the commemoration. Instead, he sent a four-star Marine general. And to this day, that four-star Marine general as a president's representative has not commented on whether or not he believes the president called those Americans suckers and losers. To me, his silence is deafening. And that is the three-part question, a three-part task I would ask your listeners to apply when they wonder whether or not the president called those great Americans suckers and losers. He did it. Well, if you've just tuned in to bring it on, uh, you've been listening to Major General Craig Q. Timberlake, who's now retired from the United States Marine Corps, and then also uh, IU Professor Joseph Hoffman, who's an award-winning scholar and law teacher. Um, I want to take a look at something that um, uh, is coming up in the near future, and that is round two of the presidential uh, debate, which is scheduled for October 15th. But before then, we have a vice presidential debate, which is coming up Wednesday, October 7th at 9 p.m. What a contrast I think both of these debates will serve to be. And uh, when are you sort of looking for uh, Professor Hoffman and the vice presidential debate that will be coming on, uh, coming up rather, in just a few short days? Uh, That's a good question. So um, I would certainly expect the vice presidential debates to be much more uh, within the norm of, uh, how should we put it, uh, the norms of behavior that um, we expect from our political leaders, unlike the first presidential debate, which was so abnormal as to be, um, you know, beyond belief. Um, I I don't expect either Mike Pence or um, Senator Harris to behave anything like we saw from, from our president. Um, I think they will be civil. I think it will be robust. I think it'll be interesting. It might be, I mean, it probably will be. I think we might, we can probably say this with some confidence, actually, that it'll be the best of the debates. It'll be probably the only one worth watching. It'll be the only one that gives us any kind of insight into ideas, into uh, how, you know, policies. Um, uh, so, you know, whereas normally the vice presidential debate is, um, you know, it's sort of like what, what was infamously said by a past vice president that the office itself is worth a bucket of warm spit. Um, you know, that's about what you could say about most of the vice presidential debates in history. This one might actually be, be worth watching. Uh, I will tell you, I did not watch the first presidential debate, um, and I won't probably watch if we have other presidential debates. There's talk now about whether they might be canceled. Um, Whether they're canceled or not, I I think I will do what I did with the first one and find something else to do because after four years, we know who President Trump is. There is no mystery about that. We know who he is. We know his modus operandi. We know uh, what he will do. He will behave like some of those uh, animals on National Geographic uh, shows who 
you know, come out all blustery and puffing out their chest and beating on their chest and making all sorts of noise. That's that's what the president does. And um, I don't need to see that. I've seen it often enough. Um, there's no reason for me to watch it. But yeah, I, I will probably watch the vice presidential debate because it'll be interesting. In the uh, presidential debate, I guess with a quick follow-up, it was interesting uh, some of the perceived dog whistles that were um, uh, sent out to supporters of Donald Trump and when pressed on denouncing white supremacy and white nationalism, uh, he demurred and did, did not really give a full-throated uh, denunciation. And instead, something of a call possibly to arms for his supporters. One, to go and monitor the polls on, on election day and then secondly, sort of a veiled uh, a call to defeat Antifa. And, you know, a person in, in, the, in the highest seat in the land, the highest office in the land, um, communicating in this particular fashion, that has potential to totally disrupt, if not destroy democracy, amongst all the other things that have happened here. Uh, with the post office tampering, with procedures there, to just outright saying that this is gonna be a sham election, that the ballots shouldn't count, unsolicited ballots have been sent, which when you explore what he's saying, uh, these states have had these procedures in place for years. So all of that to say um, his blustering, as you just sort of alluded to, can have a detrimental effect. And you already said that it'll take years to recover from some of the uh, things that we've gone through collectively as a nation. Could you further comment, both of you, on that? Sure. You, you know, I, I think again, and and I and I have to keep emphasizing. I don't mean to demonize the president, but but you listen to his words, you watch his actions, and Clarence, you just talked about him. He is telling people to go out and monitor to po monitor the polls. To what end? What would they be monitoring, and what is their role? We have people, a poll officials. We have officials that work every election. So he's calling for his supporters, his base, and I do mean his base base, he's calling for them to show up at polling stations. These are no longer dog whistles. This is an out and out battle cry. He told them to be prepared, be prepared. So a president using terms that incite violence is just not what we need in the United States right now. Yeah, so the, uh, you know, the, the one one named organization, um, Proud Boys, I believe they're called. Um, they've made no they've had no qualms about saying since the evening of the first debate that the president is their general now. He gives them their marching orders. The uh, you know stand down, but stand by, stand by. That's that's uh, that's marching orders. Um, <clears throat> so poll watching is nothing new. Um, and um, contested ballots and legal fights over ballots, nothing new. We have that every, every election. Um, and, and so, but, but, but what is different is the allegation that the election itself will end up being illegitimate. That is something that's new and different. Um, I'm not saying new in, a, in, a, in the sense that we've never had that in American history, because we have, in fact, had that in American history. But it's new in modern times to have a president 
who is not willing to stand up for the legitimacy of a system for which he is the president. I mean, again, it's the kind of thing you might expect from the person who's not the president to say, right. oh, the election's going to be illegitimate, blah, blah, blah. But for the person who is the president to say, our system's so screwed up that we can't trust the legitimacy of an election, it's a kind of topsy-turvy Alice in Wonderland type of feeling. Like, where is that coming from? When you're the incumbent, it's yours. It's it, your people are the ones who are, are running these elections. And by the way, the Republicans control a majority of American states. The election is predominantly a matter of state rules and state law until the states send their electors to, you know, to Washington, to the Electoral College. It's, it's a matter run largely by the states. So, and the Republicans control most of the states. So where is this idea coming from that a Republican incumbent president is going to tell us that the in advance that the election is illegitimate. All of this be, just basically proves the point, which is that what he's really saying is, I'm afraid I'm going to lose. And so I need to get the word out that if I lose, it's illegitimate. Um, that's where a lot of this bluster and talk comes from. And it's consistent with everything we know about the president, which is that his entire, again, his entire life story is one of blustering and trying to bully people into submission. And then when the truth comes out, frequently he, he you know, ducks his tail and runs for cover. Um, that's, that's kind of the history of the man. And um, so we got to be careful and not take some of this bluster at face value when, when he says things like, I'm not going to promise to respect the outcome of the election. Um, do I really think that he would actually try to barricade himself in the White House on, uh, you know, inauguration day? No, he's not. He's not that brave. Uh, that's not who the man is. Um, he is someone who will say everything to try to avoid the outcome that he fears. And uh, like a bully, it sometimes you know takes a punch in the nose to put them in their place. And in this case, the punch in the nose might very well come in the election itself. Now, having said that, I hope we'll get a chance to talk before we were out of time about, you know, what happens if the election actually ends up being a contested election. That's a right. big problem. That's a big problem. But once the result is in, do I think Trump will try to do anything to avoid leaving office? No, I, that's not who he is. You know, well, since you open open that door as far as uh, what do we do in the event of a contested election? Uh, what are the safeguards? What are the uh, protocols if that were in the event of someone wants to challenge the outcome? And and keep in mind, I've already, we're already aware that we will not know that night on November 3rd or early in the morning on November 4th who necessarily won. And that there's still outstanding ballots that are still being counted and in some states, if I'm not mistaken, if they're postmarked by November 3rd, they must be recognized, which may mean days later. So, so what do we do in that, in that instance? Yeah, so that's really complicated. And, you know, it, 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 it'll be even more complicated this time around than it was in 2000. In 2000, basically, it, it became a contested election because we had one state that was so close in its tally that it was basically within the margins of error. And so recounts and recounts became the issue. This time around, it'll be the initial count that will be the problem because it is quite plausible, probably predictable that in at least some states, the results of the in-person balloting 
on election day um, will not determine the outcome because we'll have to wait for the absentee and mail-in ballots to be counted. And, and you know, there's no legal distinction there in the terminology, whether we call them absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, it's the same thing. In many states, those ballots don't even begin to be counted until after election day. And as you said, um, in some cases, in, in some states, they don't even have to be postmarked until election day. So we're talking a week later before they actually are counted. That means that in at least some states, and it could be some significant states, the, the tally on election night might be close enough that we would have to say, okay, we gotta wait for the mail-in ballots to be counted. That might take weeks. The deadlines that have been set, you know, how is this supposed to play out? We have a statute that was passed um, originally in the 1870s, and then there were updates to it. Um, the, the statute basically says that <clears throat> states have a certain amount of time to certify the results of the, their elections for the electors who go to the electoral college, who are basically nowadays sworn to support a particular presidential candidate. States are under a, a, a timeline for that. So the election takes place in early November. On December 14th, by law, the states must submit their slates of electors to Congress for the electoral college. All right. Six days before that is a crucial date, December 8th. On December 8th, the states, if they are ready to do so, can submit their slates. And if they do it by December 8th, they get the benefit of what the law calls a safe harbor. That means that if they're submitted by, September, by, by December 8th, they become final and no legal challenges can thereafter be filed. That's what the law provides. Now it's never been tested, but that's what the law provides. So the states have until December 8th to submit their elector slate to Congress, and then they get the safe harbor. If they don't make that deadline, they absolutely have to do it by December 14th, or they're not gonna get counted at all. December 14th is the last day when they can submit their slate of electors. But if there's a contested election, a state might not make it by December 8th because of all the legal challenges and the counting challenges and so forth. Um, that's actually, by the way, what happened in 2000. Technically, what the Supreme Court decided in Bush v. Gore was that Florida was getting so close to the safe harbor date that they had to stop the counting and submit what they had. That was the actual ruling that the Supreme Court made was to meet the safe harbor deadline. So in any event, if a state misses that deadline, then you might have multiple slates submitted, right? One from the Republicans in a state, one from the Democrats, contested electors showing up, right? I mean, that kind of craziness can happen in Congress. At a certain point, if the Electoral College does not have a majority to declare one person president, then it goes first to the House of Representatives where the House votes by state, not by individual, and then it would eventually get to the Senate if the House can't decide. By the way, the House of Representatives, currently 26 states, the delegation is controlled by Republicans. That means under the current House of Representatives, the Republic representatives, if it got there, the House would probably vote in favor of the Republican candidate, Donald Trump, because 26 states would be voting for Trump and that's how they count the House for, for this purpose. So yes, we could end up in some very, very tricky scenarios depending on what the states do, but this will all play out primarily initially in the states.
And then ultimately it could play out in Congress. And then ultimately, obviously we need to have it decided by inauguration day. Otherwise under the Presidential Succession Act and the 20th Amendment, the Speaker of the new House of Representatives becomes president temporarily until we can finally settle the question of who won the election. Um, with the three minutes we have remaining, uh, time has flown. Uh, one thing we've not touched on, and I just want to ask you both this question. I know William has another quick topic he wants to explore, but uh, well, briefly, has this president failed our country in his response to COVID-19, Professor Hoffman? Actually, I'd like to hear the general's opinion in first. General Timberlake. Sure, and thank you. Um, I, I believe that he has. And, and again, I, if you tell me that it's nothing to worry about, if you tell me that with the warm weather comes, it will go away, and at the same time, you're telling a well-known reporter, interviewer, author, bestseller that, hey, I knew that this was a bad thing, but I did not want to spook the people. Coming from a president who says he represents a party that believes in so much self-determination and don't tell me what to do, don't tell me how to think, just give me the facts and I'll make my own decisions. He didn't even trust his own party to tell his own party the truth. So I think he's failed. I'm not gonna say that we would have been better equipped uh, to handle this pandemic if we hadn't dismantled the office that was invented, that was formed to handle things like pandemics. I'm not gonna say that. I'm just gonna let the American people figure that one out themselves because I think they will and I think they have. Mr. Hoffman, I think you're muted. Sorry, okay, that's I did, all right. Sorry, uh, I, just, I said ditto. I I, I, right. I, couldn't, I agree completely with what the general said. That is the shortest response on Bringing On's history. Ditto, that will go down in the annals of history on this show. William, I'll turn it to you for a last 90 second question response. Okay, I'll try to be quick. Uh, general Timberlake, Trump, President Trump keeps saying that he fixed or rebuilt the military. Um, he says things like, I know more than the generals. Uh, the generals told me, that they didn't have any ammo. Personally, I didn't know the military was broken. But there are a lot of people who believe these things that he's saying. And I'll give some of them the benefit of the doubt. They just don't know any better. So for the sake of everyone who's listening to you now, can you please separate the facts from the bluster? You know, I think the easiest way to separate the facts from the bluster is simply when the president makes another one of his proclamations of how well he has fixed and the things he's done for the military, just ask him for specifics. If you ask that second and third question, I think you'll get the answer. The United States military is the greatest military on this earth, on this planet, no doubt in my mind. There's a lot of things that, that have probably improved under President Trump, but they were that's natural progression. We get smarter, we get better, things happen, we improve. Again, ask him the next time, what are his specifics? Because without the specifics, you have nothing to judge him on. All right, and, and as I mentioned earlier, time right now is our greatest enemy, and we have sort of wrapped this up. We, we definitely want to thank both you gentlemen uh, for joining us today and ending the knowledge of Indiana University Professor Joseph Hoffman, an award-winning scholar and law teacher and retired Major General Craig Q. Timberlake of the United States Marine Corps, 
for helping us to examine a range of issues related to President Trump's impact on the military, his recent tax avoidance or evasion woes, the September 29th presidential debate, the nomination of conservative Justice Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, and his repeated refusal to agree to a peaceful transfer of power should Biden win the election. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we would like to hear them. Please send your emails directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, bringiton at wfhb.org. If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff, or if you want additional info about a calendar item or event that you've heard tonight, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director, Cade Young. Promotional graphics were created by yours truly. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone. Uh, be sure to watch the vice presidential debate on this Wednesday, October 7th at 9 p.m. And as a reminder, round two of the presidential debate is tentatively scheduled for October 15th if it goes forward. Uh, but be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.